My guest today is Kim Harms, an author and freelance editor. Her newly released book, Life Reconstructed, Navigating the World of Mastectomies and Breast Reconstruction, was just released on October 12th, 2021, and is now available for order on Amazon. Kim has a degree in English, especially literary studies, from Iowa State University, and she underwent bilateral mastectomy and reconstruction surgeries in 2016 after being diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 40. She later had to do more reconstruction surgery after her implants were recalled. Today, we are talking about how to talk to your kids about having breast cancer, about genetics, about what it's like to be a woman in your midlife, even though you were diagnosed maybe just at the cusp of a young woman and how that changes you in so many ways. We're talking about relationships and purpose and how that impacts your whole life. Hey there, and welcome. I'm your host, Regina Topolson, registered dietitian, plant-based foodie, amateur athlete, mom of teenage boys, and one lucky girl, cancer survivor, and host of the Life Well Lived podcast. Living through cancer seemed like the hard part until I had to learn how to live after. We all want to feel healthy and safe and know that our life has meaning and purpose. If you're a patient, survivor, or caretaker, this is the place to find hope and inspiration through life's great disruptor and learn to live more fully today. So today I have with me author Kim Harms, and she is the author of the new book, Life Reconstructed. So welcome to the podcast, Kim. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great. Well, let's just start out with um, you telling me a little bit about your cancer experience. Sure. Um, I was diagnosed with breast cancer a month to the day after my 40th birthday. Um, I actually discovered a lump myself. It was uh, rubbing against my bra. It wasn't that I was looking for it even. Um, So I decided, you know, I should probably get this checked out, really not thinking much of it because there's no family history. I was pretty young, but thought, well, I'll go in and get it checked. And I'm really thankful I did because it... um, ended up coming back, um, as breast cancer. I was a stage one. I had, um, invasive ductal carcinoma and went through a bilateral mastectomy and then reconstruction, um, did not have to go uh, through chemo. I'm on hormone therapy. I just hit five years on tamoxifen. I have five years to go. Um, and yeah, I had a couple of surgeries with the reconstruction and then a few years out, found out that my implants were recalled. So I got to go back in and have those replaced. So it just, there's always something, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I do there is always something. Yes. <laughs> Why don't you tell me a little bit about the book since that's kind of a new thing that's coming out in your life right now? Sure. Sure. It's a life reconstructed, um, navigating the world of mastectomies and breast reconstruction. So it's, a uh, 
breast cancer book, but it, it is focused on mastectomy and breast reconstruction. And I have interviewed, um, I don't know how many women I interviewed, probably a dozen for the book, um, spoke with uh, medical professionals, um, talked about people's experiences with that, the decisions they made, the different types of surgeries that they chose, because you, you get into this and you're like, oh, there are so many decisions to make, which, what should I do and how should I go forward? And so um, within the book, there's just um, input from a lot of different women who chose different things, like maybe chose to go flat or chose um, implants or chose single mastectomy versus double mastectomy. Um, so there's kind of just different information that way. But a lot of the book also is about uh, things that you don't think about as you're going through it as much like body image was something I didn't think I'd struggle with and did um, relationships and how it affects um, intimacy. I mean, it was like relearning that with my husband. So there's a chapter about that. Um, there's actually a chapter where I interviewed husbands too, um, for their perspective. And then, um, I also talked to women about how they handled this with their children and how they, um, involved them or didn't involve them because, you know, maybe your two-year-old has no idea, but your 14 year old probably wants to know a little bit about what's going on. So just kind of, how do you, how do you keep them involved and, and kind of feel them out to see what they want to know or need to know? And, um, and yeah, so it's kind of the gamut of physical, emotional, relational, spiritual, just all the um, kind of things that you deal with as you walk that breast cancer road and your body is changed um, unexpectedly. Yeah. Was it a was it a hard decision for you to do the reconstruction? Did you have a lot of like questions or you know um, trepidation about it? No, I knew that I wanted um, to do reconstruction. I knew I didn't uh, want to be flat, and um, I guess I I just never even considered going flat. Um, but then after talking to other women who chose to, it's just interesting, different perspectives. Um, for instance, one, one woman said, you know, I don't, I don't need my boobs anymore. She was older when she was diagnosed and she thought, well, maybe it'll just be easier if I'm just flat and don't, um, have that to deal with. But for me, that was not, um, that was not a tough decision. I knew that I would want to, to do reconstruction. Mm. What inspired you to write the book? Well, I've, I've been a freelance writer for about 20 years. I was a newspaper reporter before my kids were born. And then I stayed home with my boys when they were young. So I've always been a writer, um, always in the back of my mind, thought maybe someday I'd write a book, but who knows, maybe I'll just keep writing magazine articles and things like that. Uh, but I actually sat down um, the summer after I was diagnosed one afternoon and just within about a half hour's time, I had um, like 10 chapters and 10 chapter synopsis of, okay, these are, these are things I want to research and want to understand and want to let other people know about. And so I kind of, it's kind of crazy. It just all came and I thought, okay, I have I have an outline for a book here. Um, and that part came really easy. The, 
rest of it, you know, it wasn't super easy (laughs) writing the whole book, but it just kind of came to me one afternoon. So it just kind of, you know, bit by bit um, came to be, I guess. Yeah, it never surprises me. You know, that quote that says, um, I think when success knocks at your door, don't be don't be surprised when you open the door and it's work standing there in overall (laughs) with a pitchfork, like, come on, let's get to work. It's interesting. It's no secret that faith um, is a big part of your life. Can you tell me how and what role did faith play in both guiding your decisions through navigating breast cancer diagnosis and also recovery? Yeah. So um, it was really because of my faith um, that I, I was able to just have a I feel like a good perspective on what I was walking through. A lot of people asked if it made me doubt my faith and, you know, why me, what did I do to deserve this? And honestly, when I was diagnosed, not that I wanted to be diagnosed, nobody wants to be diagnosed, but I had the thought, okay, it's, it's my turn for something hard. I, you know, we've, I've had a great life with my husband and my kids and really we haven't had any, really big challenges, you know, a few things here and there. Um, so when I was diagnosed, I thought, okay, this is, it's my turn. God put this in my life for a reason. And, um, and I'm just going to see, I'm, I'm going to follow him. I'm going to trust him. I don't have to like what's going on. Um, but I trust that he knows what's good for me better than what I, better than I know. He knows that, um, I, he knows that I need this in my life. Um, and I, I think that helped me with every piece of it really, as I was going through and just knowing that I had God with me as I made decisions and not that there was this super spiritual, Oh, he gave me this answer to do this thing or this thing, but just that feeling of this comfort of, of, him being there. I remember at the beginning, um, you know, when I didn't know much, I just knew I had a tumor. I knew it was cancer. I didn't know if it had spread and I just was overcome with fear. And, uh, there was this Bible verse that I memorized when I was in high school, um, in track, I would always be so scared before the gun would go off at track meets. And it's Isaiah 41, 10. It says, fear not for I'm with you. Be not dismayed for I'm your God. I'll strengthen you. I will help you. And I will uphold you with my right hand of righteousness. And that verse would just play on repeat in my head. Um, I would wake up and be scared. And then I would think of that verse and it would calm me. Um, And I had several times throughout my cancer um, that someone would send me that verse, not knowing that that was a verse that I was clinging to. In fact, when I walked into my, for my biopsy, one of my friends texted me just that verse. That's all it said. And it was I received it right after they called my name. So faith, um, just knowing God was near helped me like he's here with me. So that did play a big role in, in walking through it. And also in um, my relationship with my husband through it, you know, we would struggle and be overly stressed and, you know, we're able to sit and pray together and think things through together. And, um, and yeah, it was, it was very helpful to have that, piece of it as I, as I walked through something I did not want to be walking through. Mm, This is so true. Nobody wants to be part of this club. Right. Yet here we are. Yes. 
And um, so I can say that faith played a big role in my recovery as well, except for that I, I'm not a very religious person. So like, I don't follow the rules. I don't even know all the rules. Maybe. <laughs> I can't say that um, I've done any kind of formal studying of yeah. religion or anything like that. But what it did offer me was a spiritual path. Yeah. And I was really grateful for that. It offered me access to um, prayer and to things that I hadn't experienced before. And so I really also loved the fact that I could find comfort and I could find peace and calm focusing on either praying or meditating and taking my mind off of, you know, the scary things that were part of day-to-day life. So I find that there is beauty that can be found in faith, even if it's, even if you're not a terribly religious person per se, mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting on your website there, uh, you had a post about your husband had gone camping. I believe it was he, he hiked a mountain in Africa. Yes. Yes. And yes. your post was really about um, him saying your name when he came back. Mm-hmm. And the, the sweet sound of that. So in Judaism, we we have um, a strong ritual around names. We name our children after deceased relatives. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't have to be the exact name. It could just be like the first letter of their name. But they are. It's it's a way of keeping the memory of that person alive, mm-hmm. and and you know keeping the lineage going forward. And so there's a power to names. And of course, it is sweet to hear your name being called. Um, and in Hebrew, there's a word, hineni, which means here I am. And so I know you kind of like briefly touched on this already, but do you feel that God was calling your name when you got this kind of, you know, the breast cancer diagnosis? Kind of like, is, is this like your, you know, him saying, Kim, where are you? And you're saying, here I am, I'm here. Mm-hmm. And um, also, if so, you know, um, in answer to the here I am, you know, what do you think that he wants from you in this lifetime? Um, Big question, sorry. Yes, the question. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that in a, I think God uses a lot of things um, to kind of ask that question. Are you, are, are you here with me? I'm, I'm here with you. What's your response kind of thing. And, um, yeah. And in cancer, I think that, um, there was that, uh, I don't know if I, you know, I didn't verbally hear him call my name, but I could feel that when I was down or in need, I could feel that, that comfort, um, of, of his presence. And, I, I think that he, I know that he had a purpose in my cancer, just like I think anything, any tough thing that people go through, um, you can find a purpose in that. And, you know, if you look over your life, I think you find that in the hard things like cancer are, those are the times that you grow the most as a person. Um, you learn about yourself, you learn, um, how to handle adversity. You, you learn compassion for other people. Um, 
so I think some of those things are all things that God wanted me to, to learn through cancer. And you can learn those through other experiences as well, but, uh, for sure, I, I, I know he had a purpose in it, um, as he does, uh, every, you know, every hard thing that, that comes my way, I guess. Mm, True. Yes. Did you find that there were other things along your journey that were also helpful to you in, in kind of overcoming and getting stronger? And as far as other things to get through this and, um, get to a good point, um, like physically, I, about a year out, I started taking, a um, kind of a CrossFit type of a class at a local rec center just to, um, gain some strength because I had, you know, I was, you're just weak in your upper body after going through all of that. And, um, that was very helpful to me. I'm still actually taking that same class and a lot of the same people are still in it. So I kind of have a community of women there. Um, one of whom was diagnosed with breast cancer a couple years after I was. So it's this really cool connection. So I think getting physically fit, as you know, best as I could afterwards was really helpful too. just, okay, I can, I can be strong and I can, um, I can work to, um, to be fit. And I think when you feel good physically, you feel better emotionally as well. Um, and so that's, that's one thing I did. And then, um, focusing on relationships too. Um, I found with, uh, my husband and I, it was just, you know, it's challenging when you are going through something like that. Um, the stress levels are just high. You always are kind of just at a high stress level. Even when you're having good days, the stress is high. So learning how to deal with that with each other and uh, figuring out how to uh, make decisions um, and walk through that as a unit Um when we, when Corey and I had not really ever had to do something really hard like that together before. Uh, so I, so that's another thing, just we, I learned that it's really important to work on relationships. So um, those are a couple of things, I guess, that I learned and grew in through the cancer. Yeah. Relationships are really big. Um, you, you said a lot of things that I want to touch on, but relationships, especially with, with my kids, I know it was, they were nine and 12 and I have two boys, you know, in that case, like I was like concerned with how would they react, you know, and I, and I had to go through chemo. So, um, you know, I lost all my hair and everything. And um, I was really afraid, like, would my kids be afraid of me? Mm. And so it was a comfort to see that they were not, I think I was more afraid of me (laughs) (laughs) at the time. Um, And how I looked, you know, you, you do get kind of wrapped up in your Mm. looks as being part of your identity. So, you know, you talked about having compassion and not only learning compassion for other people through your own struggles, but also learning to have compassion for yourself Mm. through your own struggles. So I think, I think those are two really big things, but then, you know, relationship with you know, other family members, I, you know, I will say my parents were super supportive and mm-hmm. I feel like I also had a very supportive community for the, the people that I chose to let in because I didn't want everyone to know, mm-hmm. but the relationship with your husband definitely, I feel like changes in big ways. 
Mm-hmm. How can you, honestly, it's like having a child, right? You don't know how you're both going to change until after that child arrives. Right. Right. And this is a serious illness. I feel like is the same thing, right? You don't know how you both are going to grow through that experience until you experience it. Mm-hmm. And did your husband, was he able to go through some kind of course or counseling or um, anything on his own where he was able to deal with the feelings? Because I feel like there's a lot going on for us, but then the resources just really aren't there for them. Right. Yeah. I, I think that too, like it's in some ways, there's some ways I think it's harder for them than for us because they want, they, like, I remember him saying, I wish I could do this for you, you know? Um, so, so yes, I agree. They need something. Um, he didn't do any, like he didn't go to counseling or, or do anything specific, but he, at the time he was an elder in our church. So he had a group of, uh, I think six guys that they got together once or twice a week and they were pretty close. And so he was able, I don't know what all he shared with them, but he had this group of guys that he could go to and talk to. And he had a couple also close friends that checked in on him regularly. And I think that's really important. Um, and I don't think all guys have that. And I, I imagine that's makes it much harder if you don't have that outlet because who does the guy usually go to? He probably would normally come to me with his struggles, but he doesn't, he can't do that when I'm the one, you know, dealing Traveling. with. Yeah. Eat, right? So, um, so yeah. And I agree that there's just not probably enough resources um, for men as they watch their women. And just um, spouses in general, whether they're men or women, whoever that caretaker is, right. I feel like there's just, avoid where there's just not enough help and resources Mm -hmm. um, for the spouse that is walking the path with you. But I, I feel like maybe even at more of a loss, you know, your husband was, it was really great that he had, you know, that group at church and then a couple other friends who would check in on him. Um, I don't even think my husband had that. I think we just had our families is what we had. He hasn't said anything to me. Let me start by saying that, that any friends in particular were checking in on him on a regular basis. And I don't remember him saying that at the time, you know, or, or since then. So I don't know if he, if he really had a way to digest, if you will, you know, what was happening. Mm. And I find it interesting too, that, you know, you talked about the stress running really high. It's, incredible at the time, you know, that you're going through it and, um, and it's nonstop, right. Cause it's, and, and for you, you didn't have to go through this, but the, you know, the treatments are scheduled every few weeks. And so you, you barely get over one and then you've got the next one coming up, you know, and just in terms of the stress too, like, did you have a lot of stress? Like after, after your surgery or did you feel like one and done? I'm done with it. And I just have to take this medicine now. Um, I think there was a level of stress there still. Um, but it was, you know, it was a different, um, I don't, you know, I, I wouldn't say I did and I still don't like live in worry that, Oh, it's going to return. Um, so I guess, I guess I, I don't like, I would say now I have, 
minor stress. Like every now and then I might think, Oh, what, what's this? Um, but, but yeah, the stress after surgery, I would probably say after my, um, my final, uh, surgery, I kind of felt like, okay, we're good here. We're done. Uh, let's get this tamoxifen going. And, and then it just kind of became just part of life. Like that's, we did that. We, we walked through it. Um, you know, I obviously want to keep on staying on top of my health. So I'm, I know if anything weird is going on with my body, but, um, but yeah, the stress definitely lessened after I got, I think it lessened after I, at the beginning, after there was a plan in place, after they said, okay, we're going to do this and this, and then if this, then this, and then it, just like knowing and knowing what you're doing going forward, um, is helps to take that stress level down or did for me anyway. Yeah. I remember I had a lot of stress and it was almost like, you know, it was, it was nightly first of all. So I knew that at a certain time of the night, I would have to go and take something to help me calm down. Um, And I, I talk about that freely because I feel like, yes, certain, you know, medications can be overused and abused, but I feel like, you know, there's also times in your life where, it's just necessary, you know, and why, why try to be the hero, you know what I mean? Just going to do what you need to do and take care of yourself, you know? And speaking of taking care of yourself, um, you mentioned exercise and you, you know, your group that you have, Mm -hmm. did you do anything in terms of nutrition to, to help you as well? Um, I didn't change my nutrition or how I eat a whole lot. I did do a few things. So, uh, my friend gave me the book and I'm not gonna be able to, is it called anti-cancer? Yeah. She gave me that. And, um, actually after everything was all done and we were through it, she's like, I didn't, I didn't want to give this to you when you were going through this stuff and just feel it like you're like, Oh, I need to do all these things. Um, so she waited until, um, I was past everything. Um, but I read it and I thought, okay, there are a million things I could do. I, I can never do these things. So, um, I actually chose just to do a few things knowing if I just did a few things, I could stay on top of that. So one of them was, I started drinking green tea. Mm. Um, I, I was out here drinking. Uh, so interesting when I was growing up, um, I lived in a small town and I had tons of aunts and uncles and cousins in that small town every Saturday. And sometimes Sunday afternoon, we would go to grandma's house and we would drink tea. Like that's just what we did. It was just normal for us, but we drank black tea. Um, so that's what I've always drank. And then I kind of, I switched to green tea after cancer. So that's one thing I did. Um, I also started eating blueberries, which I had never eaten before because of the antioxidants. And I also started eating or putting broccoli in our regular meal rotation. So I chose those three things and I, I actually have done a pretty good job of staying on top of that. And, um, if I had tried to change everything, I think I probably would have just not been able to do it, but, um, those are the things I chose to do. Yeah, no, I think that's great because, um, I think sometimes, well, I always say grand sweeping changes don't lead to better health because Mm -hmm. you can't sustain them. So I always, I always talk about how, you know, it's the little simple things that you 
that you can do, the best diet is the one that you follow. You know what I mean? If you can't, mm-hmm. if you can't do the follow through, or if it doesn't make sense to you, then you're not going to stick with it. So the best plan is, you know, the one that you will stick with. <laughs> um, <laughs> same for diet, you know? So um, I agree that there's, oh my gosh, just so much to do. But like you said, you know, just picking the the few things that really make sense to you and that you know you are going to be able to incorporate, I think that's the best way to go. So kudos on that. <laughs> so you said that this was not part of your family history. You didn't have any mm-hmm. history of that. Um, did you do genetic testing? Um, I did. Yes, I did the, the BRCA testing and um, that came by came back negative. Um, I just learned though, at my appointment last month or whenever I went in um, for my five year that there's more genetic testing that I didn't know about. So they, I'm actually in next week getting tested for, um, something else that they didn't have available back when I was diagnosed. So it's yeah. Science just keeps changing and developing. And so I guess we'll see. Um, but, but yeah, no, there's no family history. Uh, my cousin who I grew up with, who is a year older than me was diagnosed three months after I was. So we both have had it, but other than that, I mean, that's it. So, and this is a cousin like through your mom's side or through your dad's side, like is it, a cousin through my dad's side. So my dad's sister's daughter. So yeah, both of us. Yeah. We grew up a block away from each other and we're friends all growing up. And then all of a sudden we both had cancer <laughs> together. So, yeah. well, it's, so it's interesting because I did have the big panel done um, actually last year during COVID. And we usually think of like some of the genetics for breast cancer coming through our moms and our mom's side, but actually men get breast cancer as well. Uh, yeah. So they're, they're 1% of, you know, all cancers, all breast cancers diagnosed, um, each year, which, I mean, you know, I did the math on this, um, you know, 281,000 ish (laughs) plus, you know, uh, or, you know, all breast cancers diagnosed, you know, each year. And then 1% of that is men. So it's just under 3000. But if you're one of those 3000 men, it's very meaningful to you personally. Right. And so, um, I guess the gene, for it can be passed down through the father as well, but it's more than just BRCA one and two. Mm-hmm. Um, there's other genes involved. And I will say like, you know, the panel is now up to, so the, my first panel was six genes okay. and the panel is now up to 70. I mean, maybe oh, wow. more. Yeah. So they did, you know, all, all 70 of the genes. And um, I think we just don't know enough about it yet. You know, yeah. I think, you know, if I, I mean, it could be a fluke, of course, you know, because it's one in eight women. Yeah. But, you know, to have both of you in one family yeah, kind of seems a little coincidental. I don't know how much faith to put into that just quite yet. Mm-hmm. Because, like I said, I, just, I feel like we just don't know enough. Yeah. What else do you feel like helped you along your road? I think, uh, well, my family was great. My in-laws and my, my folks like coming and just taking on things at the house, taking my kids places they needed to go and, um, taking care of me after, uh, surgeries and stuff. So just having family who is just willing 
to be there at the drop of a dime was fantastic. And then um, I had a group of friends too, that we just had an ongoing texting group. Um, There's like five of us and there would be days that we would just, we could joke about things, you know, you just, I mean, sometimes you just have to laugh and you just have to be, yeah, you just have to be okay. And and just be silly about it. And, um, it was really helpful to just have them that I could just text anytime I wanted. And, uh, they were also great. They were a group that I could say if someone started, you know, going off on some tangent and I was having a bad day, I could say, Hey, um, can't do this today. Like we, I need to not go there today. So, uh, having a group of friends who were alongside me, but I was also able to say, Hey, nope, not today was, um, was super helpful as well. So, yeah, I think it just comes down to those relationships. I mean, obviously the doctors and all the things that they're able to do is amazing. Um, but having people on your team to kind of be there for you is, is fantastic. And having my boys at, so my boys were 14, 13 and eight, I think when I was diagnosed. And so we love to watch um, college basketball together. And so just having that outlet, like, okay, there's a game on tonight. We're all going to just watch the game together and be able to forget about all the other stuff for a little while. That was, that was so helpful for me too, just to be normal with my family. And you really are a boy mom having three boys, you know, and were you like a tomboy growing up when you were like younger? Were you a girly girl? Um, I, I was not a girly girl. Um, my mom is a seamstress and she would always want to make me like frilly dresses and I hated it. So, so I wasn't a girly girl, but I wasn't like a super tomboy either. Like I hate snakes and gross things. So I was kind of just, you know, average somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I never expected I would only have boys, but man, I love it. And you're a boy mom, right? I, boy mom. I love it. Yeah. I, um, man, I just really, really enjoy my kids and they're all, my oldest is moving out of the house in a week and a half for the first time. So um, it's exciting for him, but I'm sure I'll have a few tears, but it's heartbreaking. I got to tell you, like, so mine is uh, going into third year in college Mm -hmm. and it's a little bit heartbreaking, you know, to have those boys um, cut the cord. And like as a lack of a better way to say it, you know, yeah. it's hard to cut the cord. It's uh, you, I really became very attached to my boys. I'm pretty sure that if I had had a girl, I would have also been very attached yeah. to the girl. Um, you know, my, I always say I'm a mom of boys and one lucky girl. Cause my dog is lucky. Oh. <laughs> um, so yes. So uh she's my one girl, you know, but yeah, I think I would have been attached to any of my kids. Cause that's just kind of, that is my genetics, you know, I just, you know, but so it was very hard to uh, see him go off to college. Talk about going through this with boys. Like when you went, when you had breast cancer, did you struggle with how to tell your kids and how to, how much information they wanted to know and how much they didn't like, that's one of the things I, um, let's say for my oldest son, he's very quiet, uh, very quiet. He's very introverted. doesn't talk a whole lot. Um, 
so I had, I learned to like take his cues kind of, of, I remember one day on, on, I was bringing home from basketball practice and it was the day of my biopsy. And he just said, so did you have your appointment today? Like, and I'm like, he wants to know, you know, he wants to know what's going on with my body because he doesn't normally ask questions. And so, um, then I was able to, that's my oldest, that's your oldest. Okay. Yep. Um, so, so yeah, I think just like learning how to talk to your boys about this or talk to them was, was interesting, especially at being breast cancer, like what teenage boys want to talk about their mom's boobs. You know, I, I even think about my book coming out and I'm like, I really would like them to read this and to learn um, because someday they're going to know somebody else that has breast cancer, somebody that they love. I don't doubt that because it's, it's everywhere. It's a thing. Yeah, um, it's, it's a thing. But another part of me is like, oh, there are things that they, they don't want to know about their mom, <laughs> you know? So it's like this balance of um, what to share and what they're just like, ah, oh, no, that's too much information, mom. I, I'd it's not, delicate, not it, yeah, it's a delicate relationship and a delicate topic for sure. I will say, because on the one hand, you're like, well, I'm their mom. Right. And I remember when I was diagnosed and I had to explain it to my kids. Um, it was a little easier, but at the same time, I think harder on him in general on my oldest, because mm-hmm. not only was I going through it at home, he had a teacher going through it at school. Mm-hmm. So he could never get away from it. Mm-hmm. You know, he and, and he was young. He was 12. So it's not like he could say, you know, mom, I'm I'm going, you know, out with my friends. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It was like if he had a sleepover somewhere else at a friend's house or something like that. Like, and I don't even know how often that happened. I don't remember that happening very often back then. Um, so I feel like he could never really get away from it. He either had mm-hmm. me at home or his teacher at school. Mm-hmm. And so it was just all, he was around it all the time, you know, um, the younger one, he was nine. And so with him, I remember the way that I explained it was, um, it was shortly after the movie, uh, with the dolphin tail, dolphin tail mm-hmm. came out. And I said to him in the car on the way to school one morning, I said, you know, do you have any questions? Do you have any concerns? You know, like, do you understand what's happening? And, um, you know, boys mature also at different rates. I mean, girls also, but like, I, I just feel like emotionally and mentally boys mature in a, in a you know, different rate. So my oldest was, you know, 12 going on 16, right? <laughs> the nine-year-old was nine going like on seven, you know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah. like you know, I, I'm sure he's going to hate me saying that now, but uh-huh. he was just a really young kid, you know, like life was life and, and he was a kid, you know, and so he didn't have a care in the world. And so I remember explaining it to him saying how, you know, how the dolphin needed a new tail. Well, that's somehow some, sometimes how human beings need new parts, obviously we didn't go into the nitty gritty of the medication, but I remember like my dad asking me, you know, before I started treatment, he's like, so you'll just take a couple pills and you won't feel good for a couple days. And I was like, dad, they got to hook me up to an IV. I'm there for four hours. You know, it's like this whole, and I just, as I was explaining the process to him, I saw the color fade from his face, Um, you know, and I was like glad that he was sitting down, you know, mm -hmm. and I was like, I remember saying to him, you know what, don't ask too many questions. You'll sleep better at night. Yeah. 
You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, and I didn't mean that in a harsh or mean way, but I just could see that he could not, he couldn't, he couldn't handle the answers. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And in the sense that like, not that he couldn't understand or whatever, but it was like, it's happening to his daughter. It's yeah. happening to his child, you know? And so to, to take all that in is a lot for any parent you yeah. know, and, and he was a very hands-on father. Like we, my sister and I were very lucky to have the parents that we have, mm-hmm. you know? So um, I, I feel like that's a gift in life that like, you don't always, you know, not everyone gets that gift yeah. you know, to have really great parents. Yeah. Explaining it to them and judging, you know, how much you should say and how much you should explain. But on the other hand, you're more than just, their mother, you are also a human being in this world. You're, and, you know, going back to that compassion uh, for another human being, you know, it's sometimes it is the humans that are the most closest to us. I think it's a fine line and a fine balance. You don't want to traumatize your kids, right. you know, but at the same time, it was a growing opportunity for all of us Mm -hmm. right you talked about purpose you know where do you see your purpose going forward so you've got this book coming out Mm -hmm. and what do you want to do with it what what's your purpose going forward with it um you know I I just want to help people who are in the place I was I guess so being able to reach women um and and their support systems really uh, to to give them information um, was really the purpose in in writing the book. And um, I was blessed to have um, made a connection with a, a breast surgeon who she's a director of a um, a breast center in Des Moines, Iowa, and she um, she actually went through each of my chapters um, with me. Just, I, I wanted a medical person to do that. Um, and I cold called her office. She said, let's meet for coffee. Um, and then we went through, cause I wanted to make sure that anything I wrote medically, even though it's not like a deeply medical book, but there's medical stuff in there. I wanted to make sure it was right. Like I did this right. And so she went through that with me. She wrote a forward for me and she's excited about, um, taking the book and being able to have that um, accessible to the women who come to our breast center. So um, I'm just excited to, to reach and help women. Um, And what that's going to look like. I don't know. I feel like I'm flying by the seat of my pants. This whole um, through the whole thing thing is like, (laughs) everything is new. And um, you know, every step of the way I'm like, okay, I'm learning this part and I'm learning this part. Um, so yeah, I just, I hope that, I hope I'll be able to help, help some women. Um, and through this, I don't know if you know, if you saw my website, but, uh, my mom had two friends whose daughters were diagnosed with cancer the same year I was, uh, one of them sadly passed away. Um, but they started, uh, making mastectomy pillows. And so, people can come to my website and fill out a request form and we just send them out for free. Sometimes people donate for shipping. It's not required, but that also, I mean, that's a kind of a goes along with the book. Like how else can we help 
women. And so they have this, my mom and her friends get together like two or three times a year and they make all these pillows and then we just have them ready to, to ship out and to, to help people. And then, um, I'm able to connect with some of them, some women through that too. I've had, um, phone calls with women that I've connected, um, with online. I just, I just want to be available. I feel like I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't know everything and I can't help everybody, but I, I want to be able to take what I know, what I've learned and what I've gone through. And if it can help somebody else, I want to be able to do that. So I don't know what that really looks like, but yeah. What is a mastectomy pillow? Um, so it is after surgery, it's really uncomfortable to have your arms laying flat at your side. Um, and so they're basically, they're kind of almost heart shaped pillows that you, they just stick in your armpits and they just kind of give you some relief from that. So, um, so yeah, that's what, that's what they do. And they were really helpful for me. And, um, yeah, I've had, I've had a lot of women who've, um, like they've sent me pictures using them and and stuff. So that's, that's been, been nice too. So I don't even remember that. I don't, I just, I remember the drains. Oh, I hated the drains. They were a pain in the butt, but yeah. um, I don't remember having any kind of discomfort in my arms. Mm. So that's interesting, but it's really cool that your mom and her friends do that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's mostly like the arms pushing on the, you know, the, incisions or the side, you know, that causes the discomfort. And yeah. Yeah. Um, And, you know, it's like everybody, we have this like collective similar experience, but yet all of our experiences are very different for each one of us and we experience it differently. So even if, you know, someone just had a mastectomy, right? Like, and that's a lot. Okay. But, you know, uh, like that would be enough, right? Like we have this saying also in Judaism, like enough, Dayenu. <laughs> like that would be <laughs> if it was just this, it would be enough, right? But then we had this and this and this other thing, right? So, um, but yes, you know, so like I didn't have to do radiation. So mm-hmm. I can't, I can understand and I um, have compassion for and, um, but I, I didn't experience, you know, some of the burning and the, the like the sunburn feeling and, you know, the issues with skin that some women have that have gone through that. Um, but then again, not every woman who's had radiation has ongoing lasting symptoms from that, you know? So I, I think I had a double mastectomy and, but I didn't have pain under my arms and I didn't have, you know, so it, it's this collective experience, but then each one of us experiences it a little bit differently. Okay. So Talk to me about this because you and I are very similar in age um, and diagnosed almost like around the same time. I was 39, you were 40. And so now we're both kind of in our mid forties and um, you know, are you concerned with, and I know it sounds very vain, but are you concerned with like middle age kind of growing older? Do you, where do you identify? Do you identify as a young survivor? Um, it's kind of weird because I'm not sure. Cause 40 is kind of like the cutoff between the young breast cancer and the yeah. older, but like, I know you had April Stearns like recently from wildfire on dead. your podcast. And she, I've written a couple of articles in that magazine and um, she, it's like 40 and under. So I'm like, I'm just kind of right on the edge of that. Am I? So yeah, I don't know exactly where I, where I fit in. Um, I feel like I was pretty young. Um, 
but I know, I mean, I can't imagine being diagnosed in, like in my twenties or like, um, so, so I don't know. I, guess so I feel like our issues are different. You know, I feel like we're not thinking about infertility anymore. Right. That's not That's not one of our issues. You know, we have different things on our plate, you know, if you will. Mm-hmm. And um, so I just kind of wondered, you know, where it's, it's hard to find your own identification in this whole process. Cause like I, I do, I struggle with that a lot. I, I meet people that are, you know, either online or in person and they're, they truly are diagnosed in their twenties and thirties. And I'm like, okay, that's truly a young survivor, you know? And yet I feel like 39 is just, okay. Wait, when you're, when you're thinking about dealing with a lot, you know, something like so big in life, right. I feel like I was like a kid, Yeah, you know, and especially since then and all the growth that has happened since then, and you lose that sense of carefreeness, Mm -hmm. you know, so I, I do. I feel like I was just a kid back then. I don't know if I really understood what life was at 39. <laughs> and I already had kids of my own. Yeah. So <laughs> Yeah. Yep. And then you go through something like that and it's it yeah. Changes you, changes your perspective and like changes the way you live, I I think. But but yeah, I don't know if I consider myself a young survivor or middle age. I don't I don't know what I am, I guess, but <laughs> I don't even like that term middle age, but I feel like I don't I am like it either. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I'm obsessed right now in this um I guess mid afternoon of my life, you yes. know, that uh with like anti-aging stuff. Mm-hmm. Right? That's like is that like the place where we are? <laughs> I, I think that's where we're starting to, to be. Yep. I'm seeing, you know, some lines and things that, that didn't used to, to be there. Uh, my, we do joke though, with my implants, like being under my muscle, like I'm going to be an 80 year old wrinkly lady with like super perky <laughs> breasts because of that. So <laughs> like, I guess there's, there's that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You know what? One of my friends, uh, one of my close friends is a nurse and, um, so she said, you know, these, like this woman that she was taking care of one time was coming out of surgery. And she said, my goodness, I mean, like, really, she was like 80, but her boobs saluted the sun. And I'm like, you know, she had a boob job. Because <laughs> that just doesn't happen naturally. But speaking of which, you wrote a whole blog about how this is not a boob job. This is not an augmentation, right? Do you want to share some thoughts about that? Yeah, I actually have a whole chapter on that, just kind of going piece by piece, comparing, um, the differences, I guess. Uh, and so, so yeah, I think that a lot of people don't understand that because, um, people don't believe this when I tell them this, but I had multiple people say to me something to the effect of, at least you get a boob job. I'm like, no, like, what, what, what are you saying? And I want to punch you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, but yeah, it's so different. I mean, I'm thankful that plastic surgeons can do what they do. So thankful for that. Um, but like I have, I five years out still have almost no feeling in my breasts. You know, I, I, I don't have nipples, you know, I, um, they're very firm. So they don't, you know, I used to be a tummy sleeper. I never ever sleep on my tummy anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and this exercise class that I started going to, um, I was so self-conscious at the beginning of that because 
of where my implants are and my muscles are like my, my chest does weird things that normal women's don't do. And so I would wear loose fitting shirts. Cause I'm like, are they noticing like what weird things this is doing when I'm like lifting weights and stuff? So yeah, it's so not a boob job. I mean, obviously never, I don't, I don't, I guess I probably know people who have had boob jobs. I don't, they probably don't announce it, but I don't have the experience talking with someone who's had that done, but, um, but it's so different and you still have, you still have feeling. And like, if you think about intimacy, like you, you, your life is still normal in that way. And I feel like I had to go through a whole, you just had to relearn so many things because um, just of the changes that that causes in, in your body. So yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely not a boob job. <laughs> Do you find that? Um, and I, I feel this sometimes, but like, if I have an itch, um, on my leg and I go to itch it and I feel it in another part of my body, like on my back or on my chest somewhere, or like, do you know what I'm talking? Do you have well, that? I will sometimes feel like my boob itches, but then I scratch it and I can't feel anything. Like I, cause I'm like, there's no feeling there. How does that itch? And it doesn't I mean, scratching it obviously doesn't stop the itch. So I'll have that happen sometimes. Well, that's just your nerves coming back. That's that's sensation. Maybe I ha- maybe have some stuff going on there. Yeah, that, that's, <laughs> it. that's the sensation of your nerves um, coming back because some of them do regrow. Um, so yeah, I um, but I like, I always find it so weird. Like if I have a an itch on my back and I go to scratch it and I feel it somewhere else and it's insanely strong. Huh. You no, know, it's a. I have not had that. Huh. Yeah, yeah, that happens sometimes. Well, I, I think I just have one last question for you. What does a life well-lived mean to you? Mm. A life well-lived. I think a life well-lived is one in which you uh, love others. If I get to the end of my life and people are remembering me, I would like them to remember, um, that I loved others. Well, um, I would hope that my faith would encourage other people. Um, and I would hope that they would see that I took the things in my life that were hard, um, and I allowed them to change me for the better and that I found Um, purpose and I followed my dreams I think that's beautiful yeah all-encompassing so well thank you Kim thank you so much well thanks for having me I hope you've laughed I hope you've learned I hope you found something of meaning here today I send you healing strength and I'm grateful for you You've been listening to the Life Well Lived podcast. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and share it with your friends so they can benefit too. Check out the show notes and connect with me on social media. And please don't forget to rate and review the podcast. Peace and love. Until next time.